Welcome to Talking Direction. I'm Gabriel Stelion Shanks, the Artistic Director of the Drama League, and I'm here with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Nylan, our Associate Artistic Director. Hi, Nylan. Hey, Gabriel. Hey, everyone. How are you doing today? I am lovely, excited for today's guest. Me too. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners around the world. Thanks for being here. Our guest today, Timothy Douglas, is a recipient of the Lloyd Richards Director Award from the National Black Theater Festival and currently serves as Distinguished Artist-in-Residence at Emerson College, as well as an Associate Artist with Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, where he has staged the world premiere of Keith Joseph Adkins' Safe House, as well as Jitney, Two Trains Running, Buzzer, Clyburn Park, The North Pool, The Last Firefly, Mothers and Sons, and The Trip to Bountiful. Previously, he was the Associate Artistic Director at Actors Theatre of Louisville for three seasons, where he directed numerous projects, including three Humana Festival premieres, the 25th anniversary production of Crimes of the Heart, and introduced Louisville audiences to August Wilson, with productions of The Piano Lesson, Jitney, and Fences. In addition, he served as a director-in-residence in new play development at the Mark Taper Forum Center Theatre Group in Los Angeles, and as a resident director at New Dramatist in New York City. Recently, he staged both the world and virtual premieres of Adrian Kennedy's Etta and Ella on the Upper West Side for Roundhouse Theater and McCarter Theater Center, and that production received a Drama League Awards nomination last year, I'm proud to say. Other recent work includes Frankenstein for Off-Broadway's classical stage company, a oh, shit, starting that paragraph over. Recently, he staged both the world and virtual premieres of Adrian Kennedy's Etta and Ella on the Upper West Side for Roundhouse Theater and McCarter Theater Center, and that production received a Drama League Award nomination last year, I'm proud to say. Other recent work includes Frankenstein for Off-Broadway's Classic Stage Company, Long Way Down for the Kennedy Center, The Color Purple for Portland Center Stage, Seven Guitars at Yale Rep, Something Happened in Our Town at the Children's Theater of Minneapolis, Nina Simone, Four Women for Washington, D.C.'s Arena Stage, Gem of the Ocean for Roundhouse Theater, Richard II for Shakespeare and Company, and Yellow Man, Off-Broadway for the Billy Holiday Theater. Are you getting that this director stays busy and in demand? Because I'm not done yet. His website, timothydouglas.org, lists another 98 productions to his credit, in addition to the 25 I just named and they are at some of the most extraordinary theaters in the world. Silk Road Rising, American Conservatory Theater, The Arden in Philadelphia, Berkeley Rep, The Guthrie Theater, Cleveland Playhouse, The Folger Shakespeare Theater, Juilliard, The Magic, Milwaukee Rep, Pittsburgh Public Theater, Playmakers Rep in North Carolina, Signature Theater Company, Utah Shakespeare Festival, Woolly Mammoth Theater Company, New York Theater Workshop, Denver Center Theater Company, The Public Theater, Red Bull Theater, and The Roundabout Theater Company. Outside the U.S., Tim's created multiple shows in New Zealand, also at the National Theater of Norway, and the Great Theater of China in Shanghai, part of the national tour of China of Ayadakdar's Disgraced. You know how people say the list goes on and on? With Timothy Douglas, the list actually does go on and on. How about world premieres? Timothy's directed those too, including August Wilson's Radio Golf at Yale Rep, Rajiv Joseph's The Lake Effect, which won the 2013 Jeff Award for Best New Work, the NPN Rolling world premiere of Dontrell Who Kissed the Sea, which received six Helen Hayes Award nominations, 
as well as his acclaimed Caribbean-inspired Much Ado About Nothing for the Folger, the premiere of a new translation and adaptation of Ibsen's Rosmersholm for Oslo Elsewhere, and Morning Becomes Electra and Maravo's Change of Heart for Rimpy Bumpo Theatre Company, where he served for a time as artistic director. As an educator, he served on the faculties of American Conservatory Theatre, the University of North Carolina School for the Arts, Shakespeare and Company, the National Theatre Conservatory, the University of Southern California, the Theatre School at DePaul University, the Birmingham School of Acting in the United Kingdom, and New Zealand Drama School. And most excitingly, I hope we'll talk today about his first forays into opera, because apparently he had a rare free moment in his schedule. Whew. Please help me welcome to Talking Direction, our friend, colleague, and inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. You sound winded. I, I, need, to, I need to lay down. <laughs> I, I have, we've been doing this podcast now, Timothy, for about two years, and I have just never seen such a wealth of experience and a breadth of experiences. Thank you for making such a contribution to the American theater. It really is astonishing. And it has made a great contribution to me. I'm an adventure junkie, and and it just serves me well. Well, maybe that's where I'd love to start. I'd love to explore maybe what is the through line of all of these 125 productions and and your work as an artist. You know, I I, I tend to think of every artist's path is a signature that only they can write. We found a quote, Nylon found a quote while we were preparing for today, um, where you said that you tripped into directing. Mm -hmm. And we know you began as an actor. In my humble opinion, you have tripped into one of the most impressive directing careers in the American <laughs> theater. <laughs> I, agree. <Would> you... <laughs> I agree. I agree. It's just dumb luck. I don't know how it happened. I, I do know how it happened, but it was certainly not by any tactile design. I am so grateful, and it's why I try to serve whenever I can, because I just the blessing of the journey that was handed to me, really. So can you pull together a through line? How has it happened for you? Has it has it has it felt like a journey or has it been more random than that? Well, it depends on what level you want to enter it. And I'll, I'll just enter a, the deepest one because it is the through line. Um, so you know, I know I'm not unique in uh, having had a very challenging childhood. And it was so deep uh, for me that the necessity for me to find an outlet to to hide to protect myself uh and i found it in a very active fantasy life and in books and in uh, lots of television <clears throat> i pretty much was sat in front of the television at the age of two and i really haven't gotten up yet and and was raised by television and performance and putting together what life in the world must be like through the images that i was seeing on uh, tv and late 60s and throughout the 70s. So that was that's where my appreciation for storytelling, for fantasy, uh, and education, you know, educating myself in, in any way that I could. And, you know, someone, something looking out for me and just kept leading me to a voracious appetite for reading, for history, um, started acting in school plays. But again, for me, that was having a meaningful compelling outlet to express myself, you know, of course, borrowing others' words, but it elicited uh, real feelings, especially uh, the potent, painful ones, and gave them an outlet. So for me, it was the earliest and most potent form of therapy. 
And um, I just believed because it was such an important outlet for me that I wanted to be an actor. But I realized once I was in my career as an actor, I realized I wanted to be a star. I didn't want to be an actor. But, you know, I got, I had enough talent and enough drive that I got as far as I did as an actor. But I, the profession, how this profession works, I was doing my LA phase and trying to do TV and film and I just couldn't stomach the business side of it anymore. I didn't have the skin for it. So <clears throat> that dovetailed with my association with Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts, where Kristen Linklater was still uh, in residence. And I started training to be one of the voice teachers of her method. So I landed a position uh, teaching voice at uh, USC while I was out in LA, walked away from acting, thought I was done with the profession altogether, had to direct a play as part of my tenure track responsibility. And I thought, yeah, well, sure. How, how hard could this be? I could figure my way through this. Somebody saw it and inferred that it was a professional director brought in to work with these students, someone from the Marte Forum. So I got called in for a meeting. This was another time. This is the early mid-90s when the institutions were once again taking heat for not having enough uh, people of color representation. So they called me in for a meeting. I thought it was to interview as a vocal coach for the productions, which I was all in. But they were uh, wanting to offer opportunities to help groom what they believed was a young, rising professional director of color. So you can imagine how strange that conversation was. But being a diehard East Coaster, love L.A. Don't get me wrong about this next part of the story. But most of the time that I was in L.A., I didn't understand most of the conversations I was having anyway. So, <laughs> so that conversation wasn't that odd. I came in to work on productions thinking that I was the vocal coach. And it wasn't until I took a close look at one of the contracts that said assistant director. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, <laughs> I am not. No, not only am I not a director, I'm not interested in getting involved in the profession again. And they just chuckled. And as I said, I'm an adventure junkie. I wasn't lying to anyone about my directing resume. There was no directing resume. They were willing to give me this opportunity. I thought, well, this will be fun. What else am I doing? And that was it. Never looked back. 20, wow, 20, wow. 23 years passed. A, a couple of words on the contract, huh? <laughs> 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 that is an adventure all right well, but even oh my God. but even then i was just like there's no future here i had no illusions about it i'm like oh this this, this will run its course and then i'll get, get another teaching job because i felt confident in being able to do that and it's so about four or five years after that i applied for and was granted one of at that time the uh, national Endowment for the arts theater communications group early career directing fellowships and I thought, well, shoot, if the government says I'm a director, then I got to start taking this seriously. But I really didn't think about career until that happened. I, I was just, it was just a lark to me, a, a one that I loved and I, I was serious about when I was in the rehearsal room, but really just figuring it out as I went along. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, one, I, I think I'm... I got to intersect with the great Gordon, the late great Gordon Davidson. Like this was my mentor out of the gate, you know, who really, who really did take an interest in me and looked out for me. That in itself is an amazing story. Yeah. I mean, how, how lucky in many ways to exactly. encounter that. I think it's a great lesson in just opening yourself up to the possibility. Like it may not be exactly what you are telling yourself you want, but 
look, I mean, look at the ocean they put in front of you. Um, well, well, that's it too. But I also am out about this now too. I went to LA and I did every cliche thing. I completely discovered and invested in a spiritual path. I studied formally with spiritual teachers. I meditated. I watched sunsets. I, I did it every LA cliche from an East Coast point of view and, and proud of it. So I was very open, very open to receive it. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yeah. You're speaking to a Californian. I've, I've been raised around that, so I get it. Let's let's shift a little bit. You currently have a show up right now at Children's Theater of Minneapolis yes. called Something Happened in Our Town. <laughs> and I just want to give the listeners a heads up. The show will be closed by the time this episode airs, but we are hoping for many more productions of this important story. Um, for those who don't know the piece, um, Something Happened in Our Town is originally a book that has been adapted by Cheryl West following two families, one black, one white, as they discuss a police shooting of a black man in their community. And now from what I understand, about a week into rehearsals, this fictional world intersected with uh, the realities of the world in the killing of Amir Locke, a 22-year-old black man shot and killed by Minneapolis police during a no-knock search warrant operation. Um, how did you move the cast, the the theater, and yourself forward to tell this story that's happening in your neighborhood, your backyard? And as a director, what what do you do when the real world real world enters the room so uh, um, abruptly? I don't know. I have to really. We just opened two weeks ago, and I'm just still catching my breath because it was quite a ride and I was working outside of any sense of familiarity with my own process as a director. We start, okay, so that happened a week into rehearsal, but the day we started rehearsal was the same day that the trial began for the other three police officers involved in the murder of George Floyd. Oh, wow. So, oh, so, so, oh so we entered, <laughs> we entered with that. And, and, you know, one thing I, I, I am, uh, from my own, uh, well-being and hopefully for everyone I'm working with, you know, we acknowledge that, you know, we, we just, uh, you know, traditional table work, but this table work really a lot of time was spent just listening to people's responses to what is happening in real time that when we were aware that we weren't doing a traditional rehearsal of a play and it would never be true that it was never going to be the case exacerbated by we'd begin our journey as that trial begins its journey. And uh, we use the words of the play to, to release these feelings. It's a very much parallel to what I was sharing about my life as a child, like just borrowing these words to express what I'm, what's really going on with me until I can actually say it for myself. And we never caught up. We relied on this play to get us to the other side of every day's rehearsal. There was no feeling a sense of accomplishment as an actor in the room at the end of the day. It was Mm. always open-ended emotionally. On top of it, I have five children, actors slash characters at the center of this story. I work with children before, children actors before. I've always had very good luck, but I've never had these many at the center of the play. So that was a real learning curve for me as well. Thank goodness I had this experience. Perhaps it's true for all children, all young actors, but this group, were they in touch with their feelings and not at all shy about using their own words to express it? On day one of rehearsal, I have an 11-year-old black boy just voicing so purely, I don't want to die. 
I don't want to get shot. And he expresses it as a very real time fear that he carries. He certainly was carrying it that day. So this is a, a case where the children led. And I, I am so grateful to, to all of them. There's a lot to say about it, but let me let me uh, get let me just kind of come to a point um, that so that's how we started. We managed to start finding our sea legs to get some kind of momentum in rehearsing the play, and then Emir Locke was killed. It never occurred to me that a black man would be shot in Minneapolis by a white cop while we were rehearsing this play. It never occurred to me. And as soon as it happened, I, my next response was, of course, there was nothing in between those two responses. And that day's rehearsal, yeah. that day's rehearsal, again, another turning point, another exponential dive into very real traumatic emotional responses to what's happening right outside the doors of our rehearsal and somehow finding a way to harness that. This is when we called in the uh, trauma uh, specialists to help us all uh, work through um, things that the play couldn't help us with. And that was the process. And we and it stayed at that level of intensity. And we just finished, we just had to stop because the audience came and we had to open. But it never lifted from the depth of that experience the entire time. And I, as far as I can tell from performance reports and chatting with people in the ensemble and my stage manager as the run is happening, now that the audience is there and talking back, it still lives in that intensity. Mm, well, I'm. Oh. But then the third week of wait, wait, but then the third week of rehearsal, the police officer, the white police officer that killed Dante Wright, believing that it was her taser, and she cut, shot him and killed him. That she got her sentence, a ridiculous sentence, during the third week of rehearsal. During the fourth week of rehearsal, the verdict came for the other three cops, and I, I feel I'm glad that it came out the way it did, but mostly because because they were found guilty, that that was one less traumatic event we had to sit down and absorb again at least there seemed to be some progress to buoy us to get through the next week of rehearsal it just never stopped and the thing that really amazed me i made a lot of assumptions about the city of minneapolis based on how i received george floyd and all its aftermath and protests and um promises for progress i made assumptions about how far along that city had gotten with police reform with race relations uh, how to talk to each other about race and when Amir Locke got killed and I looked into the eyes of the people just even in the building at Children's Theater, they, they did nothing, not nothing, but so little has moved forward. And it was so clear to me that everyone kind of went back to sleep. And that was, that was the most confronting thing for me was to realize, oh, wow, I'm this, I, can, I felt a bit like an outsider in this community, though I felt confident mm -hmm. and clear about my intentions and what I was trying to do for and with this community. I'm not trying to come outside and tell them what their experience is, but I did make assumptions and it was revealed to me that day and I couldn't have been more wrong. And so even as a director, as the leader of this production, I never once felt I was standing on solid ground. Well, and, and I think I have to ask you, what do you do when you don't feel the ground is solid. And I, and I don't mean to put you on the spot in any way, but I think a lot of directors listen to this podcast and a lot of us are experiencing that the world is coming into our rehearsal rooms differently now. Yeah. And, and as the people tasked with holding space for a large number of people who have to come in and process the world and 
create art in the middle of it. I'm just wondering when you feel that ground not underneath you, what skills or techniques as a human being, as a director, do you bring to to counter in that moment? If, if you have the distance from it to be able to talk about it that way, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have. Uh, I'm happy to try. And I, I know I'm still very much processing <laughs> what just happened. But what I of can course. say is it, what one... How do I say it? I knew during lockdown and as we were coming out and starting to do live theater again, I knew in that interim something fundamentally within my very being had shifted. And I assumed that was going to have a meaningful impact on my process, the way I approach the work, how, how it works through me. I just assumed that to be true, though I didn't know what it was. So I go through this and I enter beyond any familiarity of what I understood my process and grounding as a director to have been up to this moment in time. I, it, this production required that I step outside of that and be exposed. Just I had to expose myself to myself. Simultaneously, I was exposing myself to the company that I was working with. So in that level of exposure, I have to rely on gut. I have to rely on faith. I have to rely in terms of maintenance on meditation and dear friends on the other end of the Zoom and FaceTime screens when I'm outside of rehearsal. That was the, that was the uh, recipe. I kept showing up. And again, these young people, these young performers, there's just no getting by them in any kind of this, with any kind of dishonesty or or hiding or duplicity. They just don't have the capacity for it. So gratefully, I had them. We had five kids in the center of the play, and they all had understudies who were in the room every day as well. So I had 10 children who would look at me and look right through me and dare me to say something or do something false, which I just, in that light, I did not have the capacity. So they kept me going. I just kept checking in with feeling, intuition, intention, gut. And as long as it was calm in the center, and as long as I was addressing everything that was coming at me, I had to trust that it was working. Um, so I'll, I'll plateau that and happy. If you have specific questions about that, I'll try to answer them. No, no specifics. I, I think I'm also seeing a way the, the, I'm about to ask you another question that maybe opens up uh, uh or totality look at your career. I mean, it, from what you're saying uh, in my experience with you right now on this podcast, which which one feels healing, then also feels very uh, um, informative uh, and to to the realities of what's on the ground right now. This expensive and inspiring career you have, I'm sure you've encountered many of the issues that we have been um, talking about, especially the, from the 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 heart of the pandemic. When I when you look at uh, historically white institutions, um, experience being a person of color, um, and and I think I'm bringing all this up um, to wonder what are your thoughts on today's American theater, and I think you're. You're talking a little bit about it now, but I'm wondering, like, for someone who works nationally across the U.S., where you think um, we as a collective body could turn our attention to or something that may be overlooked right now? That, uh, that you know, how I, would, how I answer that for myself changes almost daily or shifts almost daily. I do understand the question, though. One of the things that um, shifted for me while I was sitting alone in my apartment during lockdown 
is I just liquefied inside in terms of my self-identity as a, as a man, as a black man, as a black man in America, as a black man in the American theater. I mean, just whatever perception of self I held prior completely liquefied and is still in the process of, of defining from within. And so today what I am aware of and no longer have the capacity for is how complicit I was throughout my career in upholding what I parrot as um, the white supremacist delusional mindset that is entrenched in uh, organized American mainstream theater. I did it because at the time, what I was experiencing and feeling hyper aware that nine times out of 10, the show that I'm directing, the black show that I'm directing in a season at a regional theater is the diversity show, is the black show. Whether it is done overtly or covertly, that is how it's felt. That is how it's perceived in the theater when it is programmed. Because I, you know, was the only that season and usually having a cast full of black actors, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't difficult. I didn't want to be perceived as difficult because I didn't want to be the one that causes that door to shut even tighter for the other people of color uh, coming behind me who might have that opportunity because I've seen that too. But so I'm not beating myself up about it. I did it. That was my intention. And I certainly did not know myself as well as I know myself now. I cannot do that anymore. I, I just don't have the capacity. I'm not even trying to be a revolutionary. Like that stuff melted away onto my living room floor. And I am noticing now that I'm back into these institutions, institutions that have done all the obligatory um, looking within, creating these website for, creating the statement for the website, uh, hiring the EDI person, having policies in place that first day of rehearsal, that whole staff is there, what we will and won't put up with. It's a wonderful, all good things, progress. I'm uplifting that. But as soon, in my experience so far, except with one exception, that is as far as it goes. And everything else in that structure is in play. And because I don't have the capacity to roll over anymore, and for the good of the production, having to insist on certain things being in place and having to insist on not engaging with that institution in certain ways, just because, you know, I, I, I'm a, a nice black man that they know, and I've always been so informative in the past, you know, I, I will only engage at the level of what is going to be successful for this production. If it's clear to me that the structure has not shifted in a meaningful way, meeting this race and cultural moment. And I, 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 so far, now that I'm back in the room, I don't know what's necessary for the next step. I don't believe in this current structure anymore. How to change it? Not a clue. I mean, not a clue. Is that right? Not a clue? No, I'm not interested in trying to change it. I'm more interested in what I'm bringing, what I'm able now to bring to the work because I'm feeling more whole in the work and in my personhood in a way that I haven't ever. And I owe it to my work, and by extension, I owe it to the profession, to be fully present with everything that I do. And right now, there, there, it feels a little foreign to me in terms of practice, but at my center, I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I do not have an answer for the institution just yet. Mm -hmm. I think I feel that really deeply. 
I guess is is what a I want to say as as a as a white person working inside a historically white institution, I struggle with whether this system is um, salvageable or not, and do not see like you do not see the work being undertaken at the scale with which it would need uh, to be undertaken to transform. It certainly, I don't know how you feel now, you know, there is this broad career that, that Tim has, and this gives it a different context, right, of what Timothy has had to endure and, the, and just the work beyond the show that always has to occur in these theaters. Mm-hmm. I will say what you just said, Tim. I'm, I'm really holding space that you're not trying to put it on your back to solve it. Um, and I'm concerned with BIPOC artists who think they have to do that work right now. Mm-hmm. Who think it's their job to do because they've been yelling and fighting for the change that they also have to do the labor of the change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciated you and, and want to also lift for other artists who are listening that uh, taking responsibility for what you're doing now and you finding a way of working forward right now is just as valid and needed. Um, I just wanted to lift that up. Thank you. I think it's also interesting contextually for me, Timothy, because I I had the pleasure of talking to you just a few days ago um, informally about something else entirely. And, um, you know, in that call, you you told me about a really exciting new chapter of your career. Um, and I could hear the joy in your voice. Um, you were jumping into directing opera mm-hmm. uh, and, and doing so on a pretty big scale. And I think, you know, it's always exciting for theater directors to work in opera, but it's also a very different production system. And boy, if, if the American theater has these questions, the American opera certainly does um and it requires many things from us as as directors that maybe um are new to us so i i just want to explore the joy you expressed to me about getting to do this work do you do you mind telling our listeners about your adventures in opera and and what you're discovering as a director uh yes happy to i have uh always well always since i was i think when i was in graduate school i exposed myself to the world of opera i felt i needed to broaden my knowledge of performance and instantly fell in love with the form and when directing happened it it, it turns out that the very the second director that i assisted was stephen wadsworth and he comes to the theater from the opera world so i got a great insight to the direct the vision for directing opera from a theater director point of view early and i kind of just put it on the back burner and it was just one of those career goals that just never seemed to be moving in that direction and i kind of gave up and like everything else that's meaningful that's come career-wise a phone the phone rang one day (laughs) and it was boston lyric opera we're doing terence blanchard's uh champion which is about the life of the boxer emil griffith and uh some of the listeners may know terence blanchard's name certainly accomplished uh, jazz performer and composer but also his second opera effort premiered at the metropolitan opera this season fire shut up in my bones based on charles blow's autobiography and it was just astounding um, so uh, I get to take a shot at, at this opera. What gives me confidence in 
moving into this form that I don't have a lot of practice in. I've assisted uh, on assisted stage directors on operas before, but I've never helmed one on my own. But I'm so familiar with the world that I'm moving into. What has given me confidence is that even for Boston Lyric Opera for the first time, it's a, a blackity black production, a lot of black people, and, and that <laughs> is being uplifted and celebrated, and it's humbling them. And so far, uh, the the institution has really been operating in a way that where I feel completely supported, um, and yet very clearly leading how this story will be told. And uh, that gives me great confidence. I'm terrified, uh, but equally jazzed, to coin a phrase. Um, um, and it feels right. And it, it feels like it's time. And it's, it's in line with every other great opportunity that I've had. I'm just thrown in the deep end. i got to figure it out. Yeah. I, I have never directed an opera myself, but I, I know many opera directors. And what seems to me to be sort of distinct, and I know you have directed musical theater. Yeah. Um, but there is sort of a, a primacy to the performance of the music. Oh, yes. That is, is can you talk about how you and Terrence are collaborating and, and what it is to sort of think about those sort of creative priorities in a new way? Well, Terrence as composer uh, doesn't engage in this way, not yet. He'll be around once rehearsals begin. We don't start rehearsals for another month. Uh, but our music director, Kwame Ryan, the maestro, uh, who I get along with famously, we're in constant conversation. And so personality-wise, we're going to be just fine. Uh, I get, I completely get and accept that the stage director is not the most important person in the room when an opera is being put up, right? It's that music director, it's the singers it's the music it's the score i get it no issue with that in principle what i have yet to learn about myself is what that's like in the room but so far as we prepare we talk regularly kwame and i um i just love him to death and he's very open and respectful to my ideas and it turns out that a my instinctual ideas about tone and storytelling for this opera lines up directly with musical dynamics and interpretations that he is very serious about. There are certain sections that he's concerned about, concerned about getting in my way of interpretation. But in every case, when we talk about those moments, we are of like minds and we're going in in a very uh, confident way. I want to wanna maybe shift a little bit. So I'll, I'll say this. On one hand, you're, you're the very definition of a freelance director, right? And And that incredible list of theaters Gable read um, in the intro speaks, you know, how many different places you've been able to make art, but you also engage inside communities in other ways um, that most freelancers don't. Obviously you're an educator, but you've been an artist director as well. And now you have these uh, two, I would say fascinating roles um, and titles um, as the distinguished artist in residence <laughs> at Emerson College, as well as the associate artists with Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. And, and those sound very fancy and fun. And um, I'm wondering, what do they mean? And how are you interacting with those communities? Um, well, I took the job at Emerson for the title, obviously. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it looks great on a business card. Um, I, I had a prior relationship with Emerson College back in like 2006, 2007. Actually, the same title, but it was a one-year appointment. And I just, I, I, I got to, I teach scene study. 
but also it's a unique program at Emerson and they take that title very seriously. They bring in uh, artists to for these residencies and it's specifically yes for the students for the students to have exposure to those actively working in the profession while they are matriculating that that unteachable teaching that happens just by absorbing and being in the presence of someone who's actually doing it it's, it's not that mm. it's not going to follow any syllabus it's the energy that passes in the room and emerson gets that and that that's why this program is so important to them um uh, and, and but the other thing about emerson is they impress upon me that it's equally for the wonderful uh, faculty, both tenured and tenure track, it's designed for them as well to be working and collaborating with someone who's actively fully in the profession. And that's exactly how it was presented to me. And, and, um, and so it you know, makes it possible, even in the midst of, you know, the typical academia things that us pros don't ever want to do and to be there at a time where I was, I had one semester under my belt and then pandemic and then George Floyd and teaching, teaching acting on Zoom. I mean, it was just, what a first couple of years. Um, but I think I prefer to have been here than what I can think the alternatives would have been, might have been. But the, um, I've always been an educator. I mean, I think had acting and directing had not happened, I would have formally been a school teacher in the classroom. I've always prized that because of the great teachers I had when I was so young who really saw me, the ones who saw that I was in trouble and the ones who knew they couldn't help me directly, but they would slip me, they pay attention to what I was interested in and would slip me certain novels and certain books and certain, point me to certain TV programs to watch. Um, so I, you know, I feel like I have to give that back. And the other thing that I found great value in staying in educational theater is how, how quickly, even me, but I've noticed it in others as well, but if I'm just directing professionally, I notice the patterns of actors' processes sooner, and I found that I was cutting actors off because I thought I could, I could shortcut things for them. And I learned the hard way that, no, you, you just have to just sit and wait until the, the, the every actor's process has to be honored. And by constantly hopping back into the training program and directing shows there and teaching there, it, it keeps my muscle of patience and really focusing on the actor's process, you know, in tune. So I don't get ahead of myself, even when I'm back in the world in a forward rehearsal process, trusting that, oh, we'll get it done in four weeks, don't worry. But this actor just needs this time right now and I can afford to give it. But only teaching uh, keeps me in that awareness. Can I bring you the other part of Nyland's question? Can you talk about this long relationship you've had with Cincinnati Playhouse in the park and, and what it means to be an associate artist there? Sure. So Blake Robinson, who's currently the artistic director, we met when he took over uh, Roundhouse Theater uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. And um, I started doing shows for him there. We became great colleagues and great friends. And, and when he uh, took over uh, Cincinnati Playhouse in the park, he created um, this associate artist program. And so it was the existing associate artistic director at that time, he transitioned to associate artist, that's Michael Haney, and then asked me and KJ Sanchez to come in. And the original model was 
we would direct two productions in the season for two seasons. And then we'd have resources for a third project of our own design within the institution. And, um, and that was really the only time we were in residence in Cincinnati. But of course, we were welcome to be there as much as we wanted. And we did indeed have great impact on the institution. But because of the model of that associate artist program, boy, did they have an impact on me as well. So after the two years, you know, he just wants to keep building the roster so that the associate artist in that form went to another director, but we are kept on the roster and uh, Blake keeps me busy. He is, I, I've been there every season that I could be there. And then pandemic happened. So now we're coming out of it. He has offered things. I just haven't been able to make it work. But the big thing he offered was a spot on the board of trustees, which I took. So I serve on the board now. And I think oh, that's that, wonderful. That, that's where most of my um, input is right now. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. Um, I, artists being on the boards is something every institutional um, worker in our field needs to advocate for. It's a really important presence to have in that room. Agreed. Um, Agreed. Well, we are, I'm looking at the clock and I know we are coming up on the end of our time together. Mm. Um, but Timothy, we have... Uh, these two questions that Nylon and I came up with that we are sort of asking every director who comes onto the podcast. And Nylon, I have to tell you, I have never been more excited to ask this question than I, <laughs> I, I have. Uh-oh. Um, because it is about people you haven't yet worked with. And with, with someone uh, whose career has been as expansive as yours, we call it the bucket list question of sort mm-hmm. of, uh, as you look forward, what are you still hoping for? Are there artists, playwrights, actors, um, other directors, designers that really inspire you that you would love to work with someday? Does anyone come to mind? Wow. This exposes my narcissism, doesn't it? I, I... <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I and I what I and I mean, yeah, I think it does. But I think what that has more to do with. I mean, look how I started. I never had a plan for a directing career, and for the majority of it, I've just had my head down and just focused on the work. I have been so blessed. I've been a gun for hire. I have never looked for a directing gig in my entire career. I have just always had something working great, always grateful for it. So I didn't have a plan is my point. And one of the reasons I chose, I finally looked up and saw that I didn't have a plan for my life either. And that is what led to my looking for uh, anchoring in another way, which led to this uh, position at Emerson College. But right before pandemic and George Floyd. And what is that old adage? How do you make God laugh? Tell him your plans. So, <laughs> so now so I'm emerging from attempting to take the reins again and once again recommitting to my life in the way that I've always lived it and let it come to me. So I don't have an answer. I mean, absolutely. There are lots of people I, I want to work with. But I have been so fully invested in what's right in front of me. I'm not. I'm not longing for anything or anyone. I'll I tell you that. who has become a muse for me over the years is the magnificent luminous Andre De Shields. I had the mm-hmm. blessing of uh, directing him in two productions, and what a joy! And I'm going to share this story about him. The first show we were working on together, he was playing Stool Pigeon 
in King Hedley II at Arena Stage. And we're still at the table. And, you know, I do go on, but it's a conversation. It's not just me. We really do engage the play in each other. And I was offering something. He asked me a question specifically about motivation and intention. And I said, well, you know, this is what I think it is. And I, you know, I, I went on just from my heart and I finished and I saw this bemused look on his face. And I thought, oh, that obviously didn't make sense or I've lost his confidence. Let me, let me see if I can clarify. And I said, so can I clarify? And he, his hand just shoots up in the stop signal. And he says, just a moment. He goes, I realize that I am sitting here redreaming myself. Mm. And Mm -hmm. everyone, everyone in the room just like, (sighs) Just melted. Oh, I just melted. I don't... <laughs> and God. and from that point on, I didn't have to say another word to that man. That entire rehearsal process. He kept, he saw it. He he loves a collaborative. He kept seeking. I'm like, why are you asking me? You don't need my answer. Leave me alone. Just keep doing your thing. <laughs> I, I mean, I think your story about Andre, and, and I just want to say on your website, there's some photos of that production that are, you can see the the luminous joy in Andre in that production. And we've we've been lucky enough a few times this year to be working with Andre. And I we just, Nyland and I turn to each other and go, is there any greater national treasure yeah. than Andre de Shields? Yeah. It's just really mm-hmm. astonishing. So I definitely want to do something with, with him before either of us decide we've had enough. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know what that piece is. He probably does. I should call. I own a phone call anyway. Yeah, good question. <laughs> Andre DeShields. That's my answer. <laughs> very, very Final good answer. answer. Yeah. Very good answer. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, well, well, to bring this to a close, I just, you, you've given some amazing antidotes and, and wonderful stories and thoughts. And I just wonder personally if you, if you would look back at your younger self uh, what would be the advice that you give yourself? Uh, quite literally, get a life. I, uh, I it's and I'm quite literally. I, you know, I, I'm not advocating for this. I'm not advising any uh, director or anyone who identifies as a director to sacrifice any part of their life for this career or any career. It's what I did. I did it, and I, I knew I was doing it consciously. That is how deep the shit that went down when I was growing up impacted me. And I have been spending the rest of my life quite literally in recovery. And one of the most impactful rewards of the directing career that I've had is that the work, when the work reflects back to me on opening night, for whatever reason, on opening day, I can fully release the production and that night sit in the audience and just receive it as if I were another audience member. And every time I do, how I receive it, it is so clear to me I'm working through my stuff. And I have this great outlet. And for whatever reason, the way that I organize the productions, I have willing participants with all the artists that I'm working with. I hope that I'm not manipulating and I hope they don't feel manipulated and serving my purpose. That's certainly not in my conscious mind while I'm working. But when I sit back on opening night and I receive it, I literally advance in my, my mental healing. 
and spiritual healing. And that is the gift for me. That, that is why I think I never had that obvious New York career. That's why I've been all over the place because I just willingly give myself over to it because I know it's going to feed me on a much deeper level. And if I'm serving the theater and the artists and the profession with the result of the work that I put out there, great. That, that's, my, that's my only goal. But the gift to me is I'm constantly receiving myself back through this thing called my work as a director. So if I had the fortitude or had started my mental health journey earlier or whatever, the advice I would give is get a life, invest in your relationships and your family outside of the work that you do. This is the advice I would give myself. But at the same time, I wasn't willing to sacrifice the exponential benefits I received in the name of healing. And I accept this is this is this is how I chose to to move through this lifetime. And I'm okay with it. I think we can only wish as much for ourselves. Um, thank you so much for being here and for being the example that you set. It, it, what a great conversation. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks for listening to Talking Directly. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. You can follow us on all social media platforms with the handle at Dromley. Talking Direction is a program of the Drama League of New York, America's only nonprofit home for directors and the audiences they inspire, offering essential services and resources to artists in their time of need. Please join us in this effort by visiting dramaleague.org and click donate. Or better yet, be a part by becoming a member. Thanks for listening.